Hello, and welcome to Dance Talks. I'm your host, Andrea Cody. Today is August 12th, 2020, and my guest is Raul Orlando Edwards. Raul is the founder and artistic director of Strictly Street Salsa and Flamart, through which he produces Afro Latin Fest, Salsa y Salud, and Latin Week Houston. Raul, welcome to Dance Talks. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited to get to hear your story. Will you take us to the beginning of your journey as a dancer and tell us how you got started? Yes. So at the age of 26, I believe, I was studying music. And my music professor told me that my posture was the worst enemy to my singing. So at that moment, I had done martial arts, a lot of activities, tennis, tennis, all of that. And a mezzo-soprano friend of mine was about to take a dance class. And she, funny, when we're talking, she, tell me, she tells me, oh, I feel so odd going to this class because I'm 5'11", and I'm not like the skinny ballerinas. And I said, do you know what? I'll just take the class, and I'll go with you. Oh, well, that nice. was the beginning of the addiction because <laughs> ballet was very hard physically. And I couldn't believe that after an hour and a half of my first class, I was sore like for three or four days. And at that point, it was more of a challenge. Basically, I guess my ego got in the way. But in the process, I became very addicted to the art form. And that was the beginning of my, that was my first formal lesson in dance. It was at the age of 26, actually 27. 27. 27. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. So once I moved to Houston, I decided. Oh, where that I, was that? There so was in Oklahoma. Okay. Oklahoma. So once I moved to Houston, I I decided that I wanted to continue that because it was really, you know, in my opinion, it was really cool. And then I started studying at HCC, and uh, that was in nineteen. 19- for our listeners, that's Houston Community College. Houston Community College. Yes, I'm sorry. And then from there, I took classes and kept involved and then started getting involved in the dance scene. I was doing Egyptian dances and all sort of dances. And though by the age, oh, by 1997, I began to explore a little bit more of the the dance community, in particular, the Latin dancing. And I saw that there was a void in, in teaching Latin dances the way I had learned them or seen them back home, which is Panama and in other Uh. countries that I've seen. Yeah. Then in that process, I sort of became somewhat offended by how they were teaching Latin dances with no regard to the, the, the history and no regard to the movement and the content or, you know, in preserving the culture. So wow. I decided that instead of just being upset over that, that I should do something to remedy that. And then in 1998, I began uh, Strictly Street Salsa. So I had gone dancing for, for several times in different places, and people kept asking me, like, hey, are you an instructor? I was like, no, I just dance for fun. Uh-huh. But what I did notice at that point was that what ballet had done for me, it had given me this amazing posture and presence, right. which people attributed to me being an instructor, which I was not. So in yeah. that process, I had a few people that said, well, if you ever start teaching, just let us know. And I kept the numbers and their names. And then one day I decided that, you know what, I'm going to start teaching because like five different people, like four different different situations where I've been, people kept asking me if I was an instructor. 
-hmm. And I figured, well, I love to teach. Let's just start this. And literally, just like that, I reached out to them and I started the, the dance classes without even knowing that that was the first official salsa studio in the history of the city of Houston. Oh, wow. So that was in 1998. And then yeah. you know, from there, I just kept uh, moving and getting involved in community projects and initiatives, all to promote culture, diversity, and of course, the arts. Can you tell me a little bit about what you saw prior to 1998 in Houston that differentiated what you felt was like an authentic cultural dance from what you saw happening here and like who was doing it and just maybe even technically what was different? Uh, a lot of the main differences was in the way, in the expression. It was very mechanical. It was a lot of ballroom at that point. So instructors were using the Latin ballroom technique and when I will ask them, you know, like, oh, what dance was that? They would say, one person told me samba. And I go, that's not samba. <laughs> and then they would say, this is salsa. And I go, it doesn't look anything like how we dance in, in Latin American countries. So that was one of the, the motivations that I had was to present. Because I did feel that that was dishonest or unfortunate for the person who was taking those classes. I had one student that told me, I took, you know, he had invested in a few hundred dollars in taking classes, getting ready to a trip that he was taking to Latin America. And he said, when I got there, no one danced the way I was taught. Right. And he goes, I felt so inadequate. And then I asked him, well, show me what you know. And I literally started laughing. And I go, oh. I didn't mean to laugh at you, but I go, that is really <laughs> funny, <laughs> the way you're moving. I go, we don't move at all like that. And wow. and that's when I decided, and that's where the name came from. Right. For people to know with, uh, with precision what we were going to do. So when people ask what is different, uh, what is the difference between uh, Strictly Sweet Salsa and what other instructors are teaching, our goal is to is to teach you with the authenticity that if you were to take a plane or a trip to a Latin country, that people will think that you are a Latino. And that's our ultimate goal that we tell students is for people to ask you where you're from and not where you take classes. If they ask you where you take classes, it appears that you still don't have the freedom and the nat natural way of moving but when they ask you where you're from, they're assuming that by the way you're moving and feeling the music, that you definitely had to be from a Latin country. Wow. Okay, so let me guess about a couple things. Tell me if they're, if I'm right. <laughs> so <laughs> I would guess um, that like the, the way the, people move is like less like flashy and big with the arms. Yes. So a lot of it has to do uh, a ballroom is a very hard lesson. Ballroom is, is very hard. And what I tell people that I have great respect for that style. This is nothing uh, talking negative about the style. The only issue I have is that what they teach you to do is completely opposite of how we move, which is very natural. Basically, if you think about, if, if the way we explain salsa, for example, is that it's a walk done to a beat. So it shouldn't look any different than how you walk. 
But when you go like to a ballroom, for example, they teach you how to use the body in a different way that is natural. The hyperextensions of the, for example, that the elbows, ours is natural. It's just how you will naturally speak. Yeah, so, your elbow's not behind your body. Exactly. Or yeah. hyperextended uh -huh. where you can okay, see right. it curves over. It, it always stays. One of the things that uh -huh. we tell people as to how, when they're trying to feel, is that your body should never assume or never reach its maximum extension. There okay. always should be a little bit that you can still go. And that helps the body to work in its natural way, but also to look relaxed and free in, in the movement. Yeah, you kind of stay in your comfort zone. Yes, basically leaving yeah. the body in there. And then let me guess another one. Um, your, your attention is on your partner and not on an audience? Yes, actually, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's very important. Because okay. I would tell people, like, no, you're dancing with her or with him. Uh, there are no judges around. <laughs> it's just you two. And right. one of the big things that we also noticed at the first is the issue of music. Uh, when I will see, when I saw people teaching in a ballroom, I asked them, well, how can you dance without the music? And they would say, oh, you just have to learn how to count. And that was an incredible shock in my mind of, no, but you have to feel the music in order to move. So I started learning about that, the whole issue, because I, I will see people in the ballroom teaching a waltz class. In the background, they were playing some kind of a samba or tango. And I was like, but how can you all dance to with this other music in the background. And that's when I learned one of the big differences between the way we dance and the, you know, the way we teach in our countries and the way here. As the instructor told me, you just need to learn how to count. And I said, well, but, but again, the music. And then I saw one time a couple dancing, uh, doing samba, uh, the way they do it in ballroom, but the music was La Macarena, which is a rumba flamenca. So I... I felt the music in this way and that way. And then I asked them, like, so, but how can you dance samba with La Macarena? It's a rumba flamenca. And that's when I was like, oh, no, you just have to count. And the music fits. The count fits. So there was a lot of those differences that we saw. But important to us is that you should be able to feel. And the way you feel the music is by understanding and letting the music. Cheyenne had in the movie Dance With Me. Uh, when I finally saw the movie, when he said, the music will tell you what to do. And I go, so that's how I need to explain that. Because I, mm -hmm. I was trying to find words to ex express to people or to explain that the music will guide you. And the more and more I studied that phrase, I go, that's how it needs to be explained. And that's the thing. When the music changes as a dancer, you should be able to adjust and or express what the music is doing. Mm-hmm. As a lead, do you have to know what you're about to do before you do it? Yes, you do. And, okay. uh, and, and the other thing, that other philosophy that we tell people is that it should not be forceful. You shouldn't have to manhandle your partner. You just have to indicate what you're, at, you know, what you're asking your partner to do. And, of course, you know, support the partner is attentive. So it's that, it's that connection. And when you said earlier about dancing with your partner, that's part of the issue if that if the guy is, or the leader is more 
concern about showing what steps he knows, that connection with the partner is lost, and then vice versa. If the partner is, is more uh, concerned about how do I look and is everybody seeing me, then that connection of the two sort of goes through different ways because they're not connected on the one thing which should be the music. And once you do that, then it's like magic. Everything just works beautifully. Do you think the connection in, let's call it, are you calling it street salsa still to this day? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, we still so do. Uh, yeah, and street salsa, uh, do you feel like the connection is stronger, weaker, or how does it differ from the ballroom Latin dances? The, the way difference, it, it differs is that one I would explain to people that you should be able to dance with someone who is 15, let's say, for example, a leader, and you should be able to dance with someone who is 82. Okay. Uh, and the, 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 the goal there when it comes to connection is a connection with the music and with your partner to have an enjoyable three or four minutes, depending yeah. on how long the song. But when you learn how to flip your partner and to turn your partner and it's all this force, is that's the only way you know how to dance, you won't be able to connect with anyone that doesn't have that physical aptitude. So that's what the connection, there's like a big gap in the way we connect. That the connection is that you dance according to your partner's skills and your partner's abilities. And in street dancing, that's how we dance. We adapt. I remember dancing with people in their 70s when I was 15. And and, you know, as I get older, I've, I've danced with women in their 80s, you know. So you adapt based on that, and that's what makes it to be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So why do you call it street salsa? Well, we wanted to show people, for example, uh, how for, it comes from the fact that in Latin America and in many countries, it doesn't have to be a smooth surface for you to dance. We dance on the street where there is concrete, where there is a dirt floor, where there is on the beach. So in basically in all terrains, you should be able to dance without fancy shoes, without having a smooth surface. And that's how we grew up dancing. If there was, you know, dancing in the neighborhood, we danced in the parking lot, that was gravel and it worked. So we want people to understand that this is the way, kind of a way of life, how people dance. Like if you see people in Brazil dancing samba and all of that, they're dancing on the street. And, and it's just an enjoyable moment that you have where you don't need all these special things to make the dance. I had one time a student that came to a class and he said, I need to change. And I thought, like, what's wrong with what you're wearing? But when he, went, when he came back, he had these special pants and these special shoes, and I go, no, no, take the shoes off. You can take the pants <laughs> off later. But you don't need that. And that was shocking to him. I go, he goes like, well, I need my Latin shoes to do Latin. I said, no, you, don't, you guys need feet. Whether you're in flip-flops, tennis shoes, you don't need any of that. And I go, and don't wear those pants anymore to class, because you don't need them. You just come in shorts, do whatever you want. And is that, is that idea of there are no requirements that you need yeah. to have with your special equipment to do the dance or dances. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And how does that relate to the history of the dance? Well, the history of the dance, that's a very good question, Andrea. Because the history of the dance comes from, a lot of it is that people in marginalized areas got together to have fun. 
maybe somebody just out of the corner. And these were mostly in the black populations that this happened in Latin America, where they would get together, whether they have a drum or they would make a drum, or you would just use anything to create a sound and rhythm. And people would get together and dance. That began to grow, and a lot of people then the high society so, oh, these people are having really a lot of fun. We should probably just have fun. And that began to, to grow. So basically, like, a lot of the dances, including tango and many dances like song in Cuba, all those dances were, were looked down from the, you know, the upper echelon. They looked down on these dances because they were, uh, you know, not worthy to be in the high society. But they evolved, and then eventually the high society just realized that, hey, we're missing out a lot. So there's always that dynamic, that historical dynamic and, and that historical process where you see the dances that were looked down, like bachata, for example. Bachata was looked down in the, Dominic, in the, in the Dominican um, society, but it has evolved. So it's, we always see that dynamic in how... The, he was the same with swing. You know, you remember like the history of the United States with swing, it was looked, oh, let's not do that. But mostly it was always that marginalized communities and in many cases, and in most cases, black communities were doing these dances that the white community did not want to adopt them until eventually, you know, they did. Right. And they had fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you think it took on these incredible extensions and like flamboyancy, like why, why did it do that? And I think, I think I'm pretty sure when it did it was like in the 1920s. You're talking um, about salsa or Latin dancing? Yeah, salsa. No, well, I guess rumba and cha-cha, cha for sure. Um, I, I haven't seen videos from that era, but like, you know, at some point, um, and I don't know who did it or if it was for Hollywood that made it happen. Um, but I'm curious, like, like how that appropriation happened and, um, you know, why it turned from something fun to do to a competition and how, and I guess what dance styles or aesthetics were infused, um, into the dance to make it so different. I'm like, well, a lot that, of it, yeah. you would see like, for example, this, this track of Latin ballroom or Latin uh, ballroom dancing, Compared to, for example, one 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 encounter, one of the first times I discovered that there was like a huge divide in this, is uh, the owner of a ballroom in Houston had reached out to me and said, I, "I would like to hire you because I see that you have all this movement of hips and body," and she wanted me to. She was going to train me to teach Latin ballroom. At that point, I was not really exposed to Latin ballroom. And then she says, well, we're going to start with rumba. Rumba, for us, includes all of this movement and all of that. Shimmy shoulders. So, uh -huh. Shoulders, hips, mm -hmm. all of that. So when yeah. I went to the first class, and she was like, okay, you're going to stand in third position. And I just had like a little bit of a shock. I was like, okay, okay, maybe. I said, just be humble. There's always room to learn. So I just stood in, first, in third position. And then she told me, you're going to extend your arm as you take a step forward. So I did that. And, you know, the class continued. And then I just asked her, are you sure we're doing rumba? 
And then she goes, yes, this is uh, rumba. You know, that's how we do it in Latin ballroom. And I just figured something was wrong in 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 my psyche. I guess this is not. This doesn't look like what I'm expecting. So she goes, me, this is international and Latin. And right. unfortunately, I reply. I said, I am international and I am Latin. We don't dance like this. So I quit. <laughs> I quit okay. after the first lesson. And she told me, but I really would like you to work with me. So instead of doing Latin ballroom, I organized a performing performing arts curriculum, which I did. And I worked with them like for two years. But that's where I began to see all those differences that I thought, well, this is really not fair. They're teaching my culture. They're teaching my dances, you know, all this this cultural heritage in a different way that has no relation to the way we do it in Latin America. So that was part of that building up. Like, I, you got to do something and start complaining. Just do something to change that. So mm -hmm. a lot of that you will see, like, for example, in ballroom, you have a lot of competitions. You have a lot of uh, tournaments that you go to and people pay incredible amounts of money for training with big dancers and, you know, uh, celebrity type teachers. We don't do that in Latin America as for, for dancing. Dancing is a social. As a matter of fact, I was doing a research on, on dances from Africa and from other countries that have influenced uh, Latin American dancing. In many countries in Africa, for example, the word music and the word dance are not independent. If you say music, it implies dancing, or if you say dancing, it implies music. They're one. The one does not exist without the other. And they were talking about that differentiation between the two is something from a Western perspective uh, in, in how they present the dancing and the music. So when I began to see that, uh, obviously it's a business. You can make a lot of money when you when you have competitions and all of that. So it's a structure. It's more of a financial structure where the structure in other countries is cultural and all, all about the heritage. So uh, another, another in, in, in interesting element was that in importing the music to the United States or to making it for United States audiences, they took a lot of the authentic things that included the movement, all the Afro thing and all the other movements to make it a little bit more aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing, which unfortunately took out the soul or, you know, the, the core of the dance. So you would see, for example, uh, rumba, what they do in ballroom, it's sort of like a variation of the Cuban danzón. It's just that they changed the name and they, it was sold in this way. And even so with the music was, they took out a lot of the very percussive sections. So in that transformation, the same thing happens with food. Sometimes people will say, well, this food has been adjusted to meet the taste of the locals. But if you go to the actual country, it tastes a little bit different. So. We see that phenomenon that was happening a lot back then. Fortunately, today, people do demand the real thing. Like, no, don't change the food. Let me just eat it the way you guys eat it, which is great because then people are able to explore the culture the way people in those cultures do. Right. It's, it's almost like an extra culture. Like, there's the original, and then there's how it was changed, and then... Cool. But you don't want to lose the first one, if anything. Correct. You know, you can enjoy both of them, yeah. So is that kind yeah. of a subculture thing that sometimes happens to 
to a field. And, and the same happens, for example, uh, I have a lot of friends that are from, from Mexico, that grew up like from Mexico City. And they would say, well, no, what you guys eat here is not Mexican food. It's Tex-Mex. It's completely <laughs> yeah. different. And I go, really? So then one time I went to Brownsville on spring break, and my friend was on, uh, so three of us went, and he was on DF from uh, Mexico City. And when we ate the food, it was nothing compared to what we were eating in the United States. Absolutely, completely different. And I go, oh, I see what you're saying now. So that was kind of that experience, you know. And I see with Chinese food, the same, you know, how it will be changed. And people go, oh, no, go to this restaurant because they do authentic Chinese food. Then go to this right. one. You know, it's been, it's been commercialized. Right. When you talked about the union between the music and dance, it does remind me of uh, just that live music element that I know is so important. Like when you go out dancing, Latin dance, like there's a band. Yes. Whether you're doing cumbia or salsa, like that's that's just the essence of the evening. You know, there's going to be um, some kind of Tejano band or some kind of big band with that, you know, good brass section for like a more tropical um, feeling. Whereas I don't really know at ballroom events if they still have like an orchestra playing. I don't think I have seen in you know in the competitions that I have been that I was able to to see when I was working in this ballroom or even the ones on TV I don't recall ever seeing a live band and yeah I'm not really sure if it makes a difference because I had one instructor that that he taught ballroom and he was a little bit cynical but I really did like the fact that he educated me he goes if you turn off the sound of your TV you would not know what they're doing. And I thought, well, that's not true. And then one day, it was, I think it was like Christmas time and they had like this Baldwin special on PBS and I just happened to land on it. And I go, oh, oh, I remember that. So I turned off the volume and I couldn't tell what dances they yeah. were doing. And I go, holy moly, he's actually right. He goes, no, you can't tell because the, all the movement seems the same. And that's when I realized the importance of showing people and telling people, because in, in Latin dances, a lot of the movements that we do are transferable, that you will do this movement here, this movement there. But what makes the difference that you can recognize it, even without hearing the music, is the way they're executed to the different rhythms. So, for example, in merengue, you're doing one, two, one, two, one, two, the same movement that I'm doing. But in salsa, doing one, two, three, four, pa, 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 e, pa. So with that, we can tell when someone is dancing, even if the, the music is off or muted, we can tell what dancers are doing. And I found it to be very interesting when this, this instructor told me that, uh, of that. So even in the, in the reference of a live band, the live band uh, gives a different sort of guides the dancers. I remember one day at Tropicana many years ago, a group of Batasha here in Houston was playing, and there was a power outage in the middle of a song, and the percussion just kept going. And at that moment, they turn in the fact that there was the lights went out, the subject that the lights went out became a song. It was. <laughs> It was an amazing experience that, you know, you had the emergency lights 
you know, for the exits. So we had a little bit of light. And and the song became Se Fue La Luz. The lights wow. went out. And <laughs> it was unreal. And we just kept dancing and they just kept playing. I mean, there was nothing else. They just kept playing percussion and, and keeping different rhythms. And they just began to create a soneo, which is kind of like a un pregón. It's when you just improvise, you know, on the spot, on, on, a, on a theme. And the theme was the lights went out. And they kept going and the lights came back. It was yeah. one of the best dancing experiences I have had uh, here in the United States. And it was yeah. that, that one time. Oh, I love it. What a treat. Thanks for sharing that with us. We were all, we were right there with you there for a second. So <laughs> that was really really great. As a matter of fact, after the interview, I'm going to call that singer, the director of that band, and and remind him of that moment because it was really a great moment for us. And we just cheered when the lights came back, and the yeah. band just kept going. So the party never stopped. Right. And that's one of the things when you were talking about live music is that the percussion in in Latin music that really drives everything and you can have i saw an artist here at miller theater in houston and he had it was four an ensemble of four it sounded like an orchestra but the percussion section was so amazing they had piano bongos uh and different percussions uh congas and all and cajon and i think and and, and the bass that was that incredible concert just four people. So the, the, the live music plays an, uh, an, an instrumental part in the Latin dance experience where they're basically, they're, they're mixed, they're, they're joined in that regard. And there's, it's absolutely true that those people are dancing. I mean, they are moving their bodies to the music. I mean, they're making the music, but they're also doing their own dance in order to make it, be it their fingers or their arms and their feet. You know, they are, they, they are, they're not able to, you know, just uh, do it through telekinesis. Like they have to move to make those instruments work and having that presence in the room and hearing it straight from that person's body through that instrument, as opposed to then through a sound system, then pumped out, um, you know, or just from a CD, you know, dispersed through the speaker A, speaker B, like it's just a totally different relationship with those people um, because the, you know, the sound is coming from somebody who you can smile at and you can cheer for. And so that, that energy, that feedback loop, um, becomes just really fun. I think it's a part of the fun. Well, actually, you know, you reminded me of one experience that I had. I had a phenomenal, uh, ballroom, Latin ballroom, Latin ballroom dancer friend. We were taking ballet class at the same time at Houston Community College. And uh, she was absolutely phenomenal when it came to ballroom. And one time she told me, hey, I would like to go out with you guys to do all of this street stuff. And so we went to this party with a live band. And in one moment, the band began to play all this percussive thing. And I gently let her go and started improvising. And she walked up to me and she goes, don't let me go. Yeah. And and I didn't really, it didn't register. So I turned her around and, and then I let her go again and started dancing around her. And then she came back, don't let me go. And then I did it again. And finally she goes, didn't you hear me? Don't let me go. 
And like two weeks later, that experience was still, I was still processing that. And then I realized she didn't know what to do. And I thought, oh, wow. So the, the structure of ballroom, when looking at the differences, the structure of ballroom is that you need your partner to dance. In our context, if you can't dance by yourself, you can't, you don't know how to dance. And that was very, that experience, that experience changed a lot in what we included in our classes. To, to make sure people knew what to do if they were by themselves. Mm -hmm. So our classes begin with people learning how to move their arms, how to move the body, how to feel the music. Uh, because it's important in our context, you could be dancing in a big place and you may, people are dancing by themselves. And I, and I started to see a lot of those differences, but I, I never forget her face because I told you not to let me go. And, and, you know, it made me see the importance of teaching people the way we dance in Latin America and, and you know, how it differs from here. Right. I love a partner who gives me a strong lead. So I have, you know, I'm not going to screw it up and not do what he wants me to do. Um, but also I, I do love that freedom when I get a free spin and he doesn't hold his hand out so that. You know, I have that time just to have my own moment, you know, dance for him, dance for the music, just like look around a little bit and not feel like I have to, you know, be at the ready and movable um, all the time. I love that. And I, and I like um, maybe not too many complicated moves. So it doesn't just become this like whirlwind of like, yeah, kind of like, I feel like it is like you showing off, even if you're not doing like big, big extensions. It's like, if you're just doing like a move that lasts Six, eight you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, okay. Wow. We're still going. This is a, this is like a tornado. Um, so I like all that, but on the other hand, I love dancing with a partner that is like, I feel like it's like in ballet, you know, you have your bar and you're not supposed to like hang on the bar, but the bar can help you balance. And, um, I don't have very good vision. So when I'm out there and I have a partner that I know anytime, you know, I do a turn and i hold my hand out, like I'm going to have that support. It does give me like so much more um, confidence that like I can count on my partner to make sure, you know, that literally I don't fall down. I think it's, well, a, I think it's a role of the man that is so nice to have those arms just right, you know, out there right at the right height where, um, you know, you can always like get that helping hand if you need it. Well, I'll share with you a secret. What's another secret? We shared that in class. So we address the, the the leaders in the class and we go, hey, your job is to make the follower look good. That's your job. And so it's basically, it's like a frame in with a painting. You can have the most beautiful painting and have the most disastrous frame that destroys the beauty of the painting. The other way around, if you have this amazing frame but the painting is so bad, it doesn't matter. So there are two things that work to create that magical experience. The leader's job is to dance, to make the partner. So that includes, as you were mentioning, being there, having the arms, not abusing the partner. Because I tell, I tell some leaders, uh, you just hurt my shoulder and 
if I am a guy and I'm not that weak, I can imagine a lady that's a lot smaller than me, how her shoulder or how her body is hurting after dancing with you. So a couple of things that we tell people, a strong lead doesn't mean abusive. The lead should not be abusive. The frame should not be, you know, like a power struggle. It should feel comfortable that your partner feels secure, that as a leader, you're going to protect. And when you were talking about uh, sometimes when I've seen guys, I had a student, I never forget. And I was like, Heidi, I haven't seen you in forever. Where have you been? I sent you messages and she goes like, oh, didn't, didn't I tell you that I had plastic surgery because they have to reconstruct my nose? And I thought, what happened to your nose? She goes, well, I was at Tropicana and this guy <laughs> was no. trying to do one of these complicated things. And he just broke her nose. And oh. yes, so I have seen that where the guy is not, the, he has not really learned how to do, you know, issues of timing, body position, all of that, where the person that suffers is the woman. And we have told, I tell my followers, I go, you don't owe anything to that leader. Uh, so just walk away. And just, right. you know, say, hey, you know what, thank you. Because at the end of the day, it's your body. And you can complain to me, but I can fix it. And I did see one time I went to Tropicana. This was like many, many years ago. This woman was amazing. She had just danced with another guy. And she was absolutely fantastic. And I was sitting in the group that I was like, I want to ask her to dance. You know, like, you'll see this girl. And then another guy asked her to dance. And I, this experience was a little bit traumatic for me, even though that I remember he was wearing white pants and white shirt. <laughs> and, and he made her look like she had no idea what to do on the dance floor. Fortunately, wow. we had seen her before and we were in awe. And this guy and my hat's off to her. She just let go and she told him, thank you. And she walked away. We wow. were cheering. Because sometimes, the, yeah, because sometimes the girls <laughs> become martyrs. Been, yeah, And we were right. like, no, you don't need to do that. Right. Because at the end of the day, he's making you look so bad. You know, so there is that element of when the guys try to do things that are beyond their ability or beyond their skills, it affects the woman in, a, in an adverse way. Mm-hmm. So, so it, should be, it should be that moment of, it should be magical. That is, it's enjoyable for both parties. It should not be like, okay, I showed up all the 42 steps that I know, that I know right. in this one song with you. Thank you. Right. <laughs> it should not be. It is, that is not <laughs> what is it intended to be. Right. Wow. That's good advice. Thank you for sharing. And yeah, and we, I should tell the girls, do not be afraid. You know, don't make a scene out of it. Just say, hey, you know what? Right. We're not communicating. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of thing that we tell people that the dance is a conversation. Mm-hmm. And specifically to the guys, because there's this misconception that they said the the man leads and the woman follows. Well, no, it's a it's a conversation. If I lead you into a turn, you respond with a turn. If I lead you across, I have to follow you after you start going so it's not just that i 
push you over and shove you to the other side. I have to go with you. So at that point, I follow you. So that is, we try to ingrain that in the man. You can't stand there like a statue. You have to move. You have to go with the lady. So in that, in that process, everything becomes smooth. Everything becomes gentle, but still strong. Not get over there, you know, or turn, you know. It should not be that way. It shouldn't. So what does salsa mean? Uh, which came first, the food or the dance? Ooh, well, the food, of course. The uh, oh yeah, yeah, because like in the nineteen, in the nineteen, salsa in in our context in Latin America is basically just a sauce. So the uh, in the sixties and seventies, when the end of the uh, with the, well, the, the Cuban embargo and the missile crisis happened, a lot of the Cuban musicians were not able to come to the United States and back and forth. So that created like a vacuum, especially in New York, in the in the in the music scene. So musicians that were there, mostly from New, uh, that were of New of, uh, Puerto Rican descent in the US, in, in New York, I'm sorry, began to explore with this music that they were hearing. Most of it, excuse me, almost all of it was uh, Cuban. So in that process, they began to explore and create new things, combine different sonorities that were happening from funk to what became later disco and all of that. And they didn't have an, an idea how to call this. So when they started asking people that were in charge or leading this movement, what is this new music? They said it's salsa. It's like a salsa, like a little bit of everything. And that's how the name became. So it was not necessarily that they that the music imply, for example, the, the story of Cha-Cha-Cha talked about when Enrique Jorim in Cuba, they, you know, he had created this, he had altered something in the mambo and it had this extra beat. And a reporter asked him, well, what is the name of this new music? And because the sound of the dancers on the floor to sustain on beat was doing and it called him Cha-Cha-Cha. So, in salsa, it's the same thing that we see how that combination of different styles that had been before uh, became the name, and then you have salsa. But even in the 30s, there's a song, and it's called Echale Salsita, and which means like add a little sauce to it. So the word salsa has been being used for, for decades, if not, you know, over a century in Latin America in cuisine before it actually so salsa the music is a reflection you know of that of that mixture cool is it always that same rhythm in salsa like one and two three and four you know? well it's it's mostly the same you know like okay. one two three four five six seven okay, you know, right. one two uh. three five six seven so yeah, right. that is the same the same rhythm remains the same just a little bit of differences is sometimes people dance, they start moving on the first beat, which is like people will say dancing on the one. Right. Or when they dance, they say dancing on the two, dancing on the clave, meaning that you actually start moving or displacing your body on the second beat. So those are the big distinctions between how people dance, that they dance word of that, or they dance, you know, on the second beat. Mm-hmm. Which at some point has created a divide, which I don't understand, where... People will say, oh, the people on two are a little bit snobbish. 
they think that they're oh, superior. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's like mambo, 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 yeah, mambo like, cha cha. Uh -huh. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, can you dance on two? Do you dance on two or you dance in one? And oh, I'm like, just goodness. pick a number. We'll make it happen. But I don't understand <laughs> that that whole superior attitude to say, well, I dance on two. Look, our philosophy in Latin America is just have fun. Whether you yeah, dance on okay. the one or you do on the right. three, just be consistent and just make it happen. You know, but, yeah. but you, I will see that divide, which I find humorous. And I'll tell people, it's just, it just depends on where you're moving. If you're moving on the one, you're moving on the two. That should not be that, you know, that much of a psychological or, or you know, or an attitude about I'm better than you or you're worse than me. Do you feel it differently in the music? Like in Mambo music, is there something about the two that just makes you want to wait? Or is it like the same music, pretty much? To me, mm -hmm. it's about having fun. Okay, so, got it. I'm not even going to talk about it. <laughs> have fun on the one or have fun on the two. <laughs> but just have fun. At the end of the day, just have fun. Because <laughs> some people get lost. They get lost in the whole thing like, oh, well, I was, I'm on two. I'm like, be on two, but have fun. <laughs> so that, okay. I, I say that, Andrew, because one day uh, at this place in downtown Houston or in midtown Houston, it was called Valentino's. And I never forget this 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 uh, lady, she was coming to a, uh, uh, a workout class that I was teaching. She had never met my students on the street salsa uh, classes. And she came to me and she goes, I can tell which ones are your students. And, and I go, really? And she began to point. And I thought, how, how did you figure that out? And she goes, they're all having fun. Aww. It, that was an incredible compliment. And I yeah. go, seriously. And she goes, that's how I can tell which ones are your students. So I made that, that to emphasize that in classes. I go, hey, whatever your reason to come to this class is, we needed to know the reason we are teaching. And it's to teach people how to have fun while they're dancing. And it made me it made me reflect on the experiences that I had back home and when I traveled in different you know to different parts of Latin America that it was all about having fun. Mm -hmm. Like you go to a house or that is very you know perhaps small, there's no room, people will stack furniture <laughs> and do anything to create a space for dancing. And it was not about what kind of floor it is or what kind of shoes you had. It was just all about having fun. And I guess I had that ingrained in, in my system and in my experience that I was transmitting that without actually being conscious about it until that student in a December of, uh, it was the year 1999, that Babette Dijon, I still remember that 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 day she goes this 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 one and i go huh how and i've had people that will call me like hey you know i went dancing and people ask me if i took classes from you and i was like what did you do now tell me yeah. <laughs> but i realized that is that that we make it an cool. emphasis that you must have fun even if you only know two steps right but do them having fun because it's better to do two steps with fun than to do eight steps and look miserable you know? yeah so that's one of our philosophy. 
That's cool. It reminds me of a friend of mine who's Venezuelan and she'll have a few friends over at her house and they'll turn on the music and the way they respond and like erupt when the music comes on <laughs> is as if like a bunch of people just poured shots, you know, like they're so happy. They're just like, Hey, okay, we're going to party now. Like they don't need anything else. Just, they feel that beat, they get up, you know, it's no big deal. It's just like, this means, this means go like, this is go time for a good time. I love that. And, and, and that's part of the, the, the essence and the philosophy of the culture. Yeah. And I realized that when, whenever I looked like, for example, ballroom people, I go, like, were you guys angry at each other? And they were like, <laughs> because, you know, right. this very. Yeah. And I was like, uh, uh, are you all really having fun when you do this? So it there's was a theatricality. That. Yeah. There's something different about that kind of artistic, more artistic approach, I think, where like in this song, we're going to be doing it this way. And like, you know, that's cool. It's more like an interpretive dance. Yeah, but we just want to have fun. Yeah, got it. <laughs> that's, that's what we tell people. Just enjoy it. And and it should be visible. Does that make sense? The, the body would express that. And I will tell people sometimes in class, your body doesn't lie. Whatever is going through your head it's hard to disconnect your body and your head. And uh, and people say, well, I have to have two, two or three, four drinks because, you know, I'm, a, mm-hmm. I'm afraid people are seeing me, you know, like, let me just break this to you. I'm an instructor and people, yes, people will watch me, but I don't care. So I guarantee you one thing, people don't really care. They don't even know that you're here. So just go and have fun. And that's the one thing that I tell people, I say, no, I said, I know they're watching me because, you know, that's when you're an instructor, people will watch you to see if they want to take classes from you. But I go, I'm here to have fun, not to work. And that's it. So after 20 years, I'm still having fun when I go out. And I don't think I'm going to change that. Yeah, right on. So have you, uh, well, tell us about the three major events that you do every year. Okay. So the three major events that we have are the first one that we did that became an annual event was Southside Salud. And that's when the city of Houston was being flagged with being the fattest city in the country, uh, according to uh, the survey on, on Men's Health magazine. And we, the city was looking for different programs that will, you know, engage people in moving and all of that. So I came up with the idea of Salsa y Salud. I think it was in 2010. And then in 2011, so basically it's a, it's a big salsa show, live music, live dancing, all of that with the goal of attracting people and sharing the message of health in the program. So this year, actually, on September 19, 2020, would have been our 10th anniversary, but obviously with coronavirus, we're not going to do that. So we might just do that next year. And that's the first one. The second event that we launched, which was going to be the seventh year uh, this year, was going to be is the Afro-Latin Dance Fest, or the Afro-Latin Festival. So what we wanted to do was to in that program show all the different influences that we have in Latin music. So in the area of Afro, all the elements that came from Africa, and then in the area of Latin, all the elements that develop here. And that includes from indigenous dancing to dancers that came from Spain, and then dancers that actually develop and form here in Latin America. That includes music and dance, and uh, that program also features a panel discussion on topics in exploring the the social structure that that had impact or and or influence the dances the development of dances and music in latin america and the third one which we launched this year in january is called latin week houston 
and it's basically an all-performance program. And what we wanted to do in this in this uh, in this element, or in, actually in this series, was to show how the performance of all the different influences of, of Latin American dance, Latin American music, evolved. So this year we had from we had dancing, we had salsa concert, we had classical music concert, you know, of, of Latin American music. We had uh, indigenous music, indigenous dance performances, and all just intertwined in on stage. the The closing of the of the event featured flamenco, indigenous dances, classical music, African music, and what we wanted to do was to show people the full spectrum of all the influences that make up Latin culture, Latin art, Latin music, Latin dances. And that way it was educational, but done through the arts. So those are the three major ones that we do uh, that that sort of evolve from Strictly Street Salsa and all the different... Uh, I just noticed that I speak with my hands, so I see my hands moving all over. Uh, <laughs> it's so it's funny. I, I'm so used to to moving my hands, but uh, so those are the ones that that evolve. We do other programs in the community. Here we go in the community. Yeah. Right, you have your <laughs> ongoing classes, performances, outreach, Correct. educational programs in schools. Correct, and so many we have we have done with dance with dance Houston. So we we we're grateful for that partnership that has been for over ten years now. Oh, it's yeah, it's been a long time. We appreciate you. Yeah. And we we're, totally appreciate what you do. Together. Yay. Oh, for sure. So tell me about this, this period of time now and what you're doing, how you've, you know, continued to work on your career and promote your art without all this regular stuff going on and special events. Well, uh, in this process or in this, I call it a sort of a vacation for me because I have been going nonstop for so many years. So it has turned out to be a break, but also I realized that I could do other things. So one of my hobbies, and used to be a job before, was doing stuff in the kitchen. So I have been cooking a lot and exploring the, all the different... All, oh, and I did forget to say that in Latin Week Houston, we also wanted to highlight cuisine. So we had like a, a special chef that came and she created this amazing evening of food. And we also want to show, so I've been exploring all of these elements from indigenous of ingredients, indig uh, native ingredients of, uh, you know, of Latin America, then to see which ones came from Africa, which one came from Europe. So I've been exploring that. But when it comes to dancing, we haven't really done anything just because, you know, we can't. What we're looking at at the moment is to see how to restructure a few things in order to reach and to keep the dancing element alive. So we have a couple of meetings coming up to perhaps look at 2021 and how we can bring a lot of those things back. We're also exploring the ability, the, the probability, so 2021 to see how we can do again Latin Week Houston. So technically all our, our programs are on hold but yet we're still looking at, at the different possibilities we could explore in presenting them next year, hopefully when the situation has become a little bit much more controlled and or normal. So that's that's what we're looking at right now, just exploring the different possibilities. So you're kind of in a planning phase. Yes. Yeah, replanning. That's great. 
you recently did a master class for Dance Houston, which you guys can find on our Dance Houston's YouTube page. Do you have other uh, performances or educational material um, that people can connect with online? Yes, we have done, uh, we did a mini class for Univision, which is on their page, and for Great Day Houston. Great. And on October 16th, I'll be doing a lecture-type uh, history of salsa for the Institute of Hispanic Culture. And then that will be coming out, you know, we'll be posting about that on our Facebook page and all of that. Is that with Rice University or is that something else? That is with the Institute of Hispanic Culture. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's not, it is not with Rice. It's different. Yes. Uh, you were sharing a lot through that. Was it? Was it through Rice University or through the Institute of Hispanic Culture uh, earlier in the pandemic? Uh, you were presenting quite a few masters. It was classes. with Rice, yeah. Oh, I was yeah. doing that with the program called Arts of Tolerance, which is... Right. Uh, yeah. So that's under the Boniac Institute. So we were doing... Uh, and actually, I was working with that project until June, and then we had to stop due to the pandemic. But yeah, so we did share a lot of of dance uh, videos, uh, music videos. And the idea was to provide uh, people while they were at home with a curriculum of performing arts. So personally, have you danced with a partner since N March 13th? No. And I have, I have been fine. <laughs> with uh -huh. that. People ask me, don't you miss dancing? And I go, yes. But I've been doing that nonstop for 22 years. Yeah. And uh, so I welcome the break. Okay. But I'm looking forward to, to start back, you know, as soon as it's safe and, and it's okay to do it. Mm -hmm. And so are you dancing at home? No. Um, well, actually, just a little. I just dance a little. Mostly when I'm cooking something, I am dancing in between. But I took the time to do some rehab because I had a back injury. And uh, so I am working through that to hopefully when we come back to some level of normality that I have been over that injury. And I injured myself coming down the stairs. So it was really crazy. Uh, I fell. But uh, other than that, no, I've been just staying active as much as I can, doing stretching, some weight training, but all, all with the hopes of coming back to normality or, you know, come back to dancing when we can. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's close with exploring one of the philosophies that you have uh, in your company, which is about celebrating commonalities while respecting differences. Can you yes. tell us what you mean by that? Well, the uh, I had a, a, one of my dear friends, great artist, Irma La Paloma, in a conversation I had with her one day, and she used the word respect. And she said, presenting the arts with the respect. And that was a that had a great impact on me. Because until that point, I had never focused on the element of respect. And when she said that, and I've actually mentioned that to her that I am very thank I'm very grateful for her saying that and that I was able to hear it. I realized that that's very important because when I when I see uh, art forms that are presented, it it showed me why I was upset when I saw Latin ballroom dance because it was disrespectful to my culture. And 
I began to understand a lot of things that I hadn't, I was not able to label just because I was, you know, I didn't pay attention to some of those little details. But when she put in the level of respect, I go, ah, okay. But it also has challenged me to present other dances or other art forms, even if I'm not familiar with them, with the respect, which means that I will inquire, I will research, I will consult and say, hey, is this how you all will do this in your country or in your culture? Someone would say, no, this goes first and then this goes second. So to me, it has been an educational experience in learning about other cultures that helps to create that unity because when you're dealing with someone else's culture, you're taking the time to learn what's important within that context. So it has been a dual thing that we say uh, that I present that and that people can feel that there's a there's an honest desire to present their culture the best possible way. And that's one of the philosophies that drives everything that we do, that, that we make sure that everyone is happy, but also that everyone is respected and honored. My guest today is Raul Orlando Edwards. He's the founder and artistic director of Strictly Street Salsa and Flamart, which stands for featuring Latin American music and art. Raul, thank you for being a part of Dance Talks. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share our podcast and reach out to us on social media if you'd like to talk. To support Dance Talks, donate to Dance Houston. Talk to you on Monday.